I want to use an analogy to warm up. Um, one of the things that I like to do, one of my hobbies is to cook on the grill and to barbecue. And uh, when I thought about today's lesson, there is a difference between grilling and between barbecuing. When you grill, you go high, hot, and fast. And when you barbecue, you go low and slow. That's the definition of barbecue for all of you aficionados out there. So if you're cooking high and fast, that's not barbecue. If you go down south and say, I'm cooking high and fast, they'll say, that's not barbecue. Low and slow. But with today's lesson and with this survey of Pilgrim's Progress, we've got a grill. So we've got to go high heat. Now, when you do grill, sometimes you can slow down and reduce the heat and let that heat get to the center of the meat, especially if it's cold when you put it on. But uh, for the most part, you're, you're going to go hot and fast. So that's what our lesson kind of lines up like today. I'm going to try to go hot and fast at the beginning, kind of slow down in the middle, and then end a little high heat, put a little sear on at the end. So to set the stage this morning, remember that Christian and Hopeful had encountered ignorance previously on the path to the celestial city. It's in section 104 of Ken Pulse's guide. Ignorance is his name. He is from the town of conceit, and he'd entered, by the, way, uh, entered the way to the celestial city by a narrow, crooked path, which comes directly from his town, not by the wicked gate, which is Christ. Well, their first conversation did not go well, nor did it end well, because at that point, ignorance was convinced of his religion and would have no part of biblical gospel shared with him by the two pilgrims, which centered upon the truth that we find in John 10. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This is the figure of speech that Jesus spoke to them. But they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Well, Christian and Hopeful decide to leave ignorance alone to think about the truths they have shared with the hopes they will speak with him again at a later time. Last Sunday, Jonathan Jones did an amazing job guiding us through Hopeful's testimony. I commend that lesson to you. You can find it on our Cornerstone uh, YouTube page, and uh, you can review it there because it definitely feeds into today. This morning, we'll look at sections 121 to 128 as they're labeled in Ken Pulse's commentary. Our first swing this morning, you knew there was going to be a baseball reference, right? Our first swing this morning is a line drive base hit from Ken Holt Pulse's commentary, a commentary that, I, I'm, as I mentioned, I'll quote from heavily in, in your handout and through the lesson this morning. During the long journey across the enchanted ground, Bunyan offers deeper insight into his story through two extended conversations. In the first, 
Hopeful shares with Christian his testimony of coming to faith in Christ. For the second, Bunyan brings back ignorance, a character from earlier in the allegory. Bunyan's purpose in these extended conversations is twofold. One, to draw out some important doctrines regarding the salvation of sinners. Two, to more clearly highlight the differences between true faith and false faith. And now today, he adds a third, and that is, the, he will add a third later, and that is the, the issue of temporary faith. And we'll get there later in our lesson. So, section 121, ignorance follows his heart. Hopeful looks back and sees that ignorance is loitering and lagging behind, but Christian and Hopeful are willing to wait for him, desiring the opportunity to speak with him again. Immediately sharing his testimony, Hopeful's attention turns to ignorance, a character they have encountered previously. One has to wonder if Bunyan intends for us, his readers, to consider the power that one's own salvation testimony can have to inspire concern for others. You know how it is sometimes when you are rehearsing your own testimony, your mind immediately goes to someone that you know or that you're acquainted with that you wish had the same faith as you. I think that's one of the lessons that we can take away from this morning. It also stands out that ignorance prefers to walk alone, accompanied only by his good motions, his own heart, and the thoughts that result. He does so even though they are passing through the enchanted ground. Do you remember that? When Christian and Hopeful first got into the enchanted ground, one of the dangers that they found was falling asleep. And they've been engaged in these conversations to help keep each other awake and alert as they pass through this dangerous part of their journey. Notice the lack of humility as you read through this uh, conversation. Ignorance is uh, depicted as, throughout this as being unchanged. In contrast to Hopeful, who often defers to Christian, like he says things like, you're the elder man, so you go first. Ignorance, whom we learned early is a very brisk lad, prefers his own opinion and remains quite smug and testy, unchanged by the truths previously or currently being shared. Also notice that as Christian is very direct and corrective in his demeanor and his comments and his responses. And it just reminds me of something Ray Comfort says in witnessing to others. You give law to the proud and you give grace to the humble. Something I think we can observe and take away. Finally, we see several contrasting themes emerging during this theology Q&A. There's a little Shailen reference there for those of you that like him. Um, between these three characters. Number one, the deceitfulness of good motions. Ignorance has, be, has moored his soul to wishful thinking, Pulse writes. He hopes all is well. His, he rests his hope on his own good motions that come to his mind to comfort him along the way. Christian shows from Scripture which, by the way, is the main contrast, I believe, that Bunyan is trying to communicate. The contrast between the Word of God and the authority of the Word of God and the human heart and the authority of the human heart. Christian shows from Scripture that these good motions are insufficient to validate saving faith. Number two, the deceitfulness of the heart. Ignorance trusts the affirmations of his heart that his life is good. But Christian replies, the heart is deceitful above all things. We find that in Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Well, here's a takeaway. Ignorance has wrongly judged that his heart is good. He's not convinced of, of death, of the depth of his sin, or his need of a savior. 
He finds comfort in himself, his good works, his positive outlook, his self-determination. He has wrongly concluded, he has wrongly concluded that because his heart and life agree together, he has a well-grounded hope that God will accept him. He makes it clear by his replies that while he presents himself as a follower of Christ, he is in fact a follower of himself. So what can we get from this? I guess a good question is, are there times or areas in our lives that we prefer to walk alone or rebuff the word of God or rebuff sound counsel? I think John Bunyan would want us to ask ourselves that question. I know you all. Many of you are viewing on live stream. You don't fall into the category of complete ignorance. You're here this morning. But are there degrees in which there are ignorance in each of our lives? That's the question that I think we need to ask ourselves. Finally, there's much to learn from Christian and hopeful as they seek to minister to and persuade ignorance of the error of his ways. One is the compassion for lost souls, which I mentioned earlier. And then another that I know I take personally to heart is the courage that they demonstrate or that Bunyan wants us to observe, the courage to confront that is described in this section. Pulse writes, the only sure foundation on which to anchor our hope is God's word. It points us to Christ who alone can save us. But ignorance has traded the sure word of God for the shifting sensations of the heart. He believes all is well with his soul because his heart tells him so. Christian tells him plainly, your heart tells you so? Except the word of God bears witness in this matter, other testimony is of no value. But Christians warns, it is one thing indeed to have these and another thing only to think so. So how then can we know if our heart holds good treasure or evil treasure? In the next post, Christian explains the true measure of the heart. So let's move on and look at section 122, the true measure of the heart. The true measure of the heart. It is one thing to have a good heart and another thing to only think your heart is good. It is one thing to live a good life. Another thing only to think your life is good. So how can you be sure? That's one of life's most important questions, isn't it? How can you be sure? How do you rightly measure the heart? How do you know what thoughts are good? How can you truly know if your life is in accord with God's commands? Excuse me. Thanks. As we look at section 122, let's make a few observations. Notice that for the first time in both of these encounters, ignorance begins to ask questions. Questions that seem to be genuine on the surface. Ignorance says, for example, pray, talking to Christian, pray, what counts you good thoughts in a life according to God's commandments? What good thoughts respecting ourselves line up with the word of God? When do our thoughts of ourselves agree with the word of God? But even his questions are telling as they display his main concern, God's commandments and his own good thoughts. Note that ignorance is not seeking truth by asking questions. He really only wants to hear Christian and hopeful affirm what he already believes. So he balks at the truth from Scripture, which challenges beliefs about his heart. Ignorance says, I will never believe that is my heart and that my heart is that bad. Ken Pulse writes, Christian instructs ignorance. He gets to the heart of the difference between a true believer and a false believer. 
ignorance, a false believer, sets his own standards. His understanding of what is right is shaped by how he feels about his place in the world, how he desires to live his life, and how much he has prospered or suffered in this life. Ignorance remains true to his heart. If in his heart he sincerely believes something to be be true, then it must be true. But Christian and hopeful look to a better and surer standard. The true measure of the heart is not our feelings and passions. It is not our hopes and aspirations, nor is it our experiences or obstacles we've overcome. The true measure of the heart is the word of God. Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is none, not even one. So what are our takeaways? This is what the Bible says is true about us, Pulse writes. If left to ourselves, this is our natural condition. This is the true measure of the heart. If this is what we believe about ourselves, then we are thinking good thoughts. Good thoughts are not necessarily thoughts about pleasant things. Good thoughts are are thoughts that reflect the truths of God's word. If we anchor our judgments in God's word, then we will think rightly about our ways. If we acknowledge that what God has said about us in his word is true, then there is hope that we will be humbled, that we will come to our senses and and see our desperate need of a savior. There is hope that we will stop trusting ourselves, resting in our own righteousness, and look to Christ, who alone gives light to those who sit in, in darkness and guides our feet into the way of peace. That's from Luke 1, 79. What are some lessons and applications here? Ignorance was hindered from coming to faith because he did not believe the truth about himself. His heart was darkened by sin. His life was in defiance of God's law. He was justly condemned. He was a justly condemned sinner in need of God's grace and mercy, but he simply could not believe that his heart was that bad. Why? Because his heart told him so. How often are the questions we ask designed to set up an opportunity to voice our own belief or opinion? How often do we follow our own hearts or go with our guts rather than following the clear teaching or counsel of the Word of God? Well, let's move on to section 123. What are right thoughts about God? In section 123, Bunyan dives a little deeper into right thoughts about God. Pulse writes, If we are to rightly understand ourselves, we measure ourselves according to God's Word. This is a truth of what we believe about ourselves, and it is true of what we believe about God. Having good thoughts about God is not necessarily thinking highly of him or hoping that he will answer our prayers just as we desire. We are not free to imagine God as we want him to be. He is not defined by our feelings, our felt needs, or our own sense of justice. If we are to know God truly, we must know him as he has revealed himself in his word. So as we observe here, ignorance asks of Christian, what are good thoughts concerning God? Seems like a great question, as I mentioned before, but Christian and hopeful are making progress in their ministry. Uh, It seems like a great question that indicates that maybe Christian and hopeful are making progress. The fact that ignorance is asking questions. But we will see later in uh, section 124 and 125, uh, this is really a setup question from ignorance. 
Although he appeared to, to, that he desired to hear from Christian and hopeful about their views, he really doesn't. Not only being resistant to biblical truth being presented, but also being 100% convinced that, quote, his truth is his truth and their truth is their truth. We'll see that in section 125. Christian responds to the question that uh, ignorance asks, what are good thoughts concerning God, uh, by emphasizing the word of God. Again, one of the central themes of our lesson today, the word of God and the importance of it. Ken Pulse lists for us a number of God's attributes find in, found in scripture. I'll just read through these quick, quickly. You have them there in your notes or access to them. God is solitary. He alone is God. There is none like him. God is holy. He alone is perfect and pure and righteous. Because he's holy, he hates sin and he will judge sin. God is supreme. He is above all things. He is first and primary. Nothing is greater. Nothing is higher. God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows everything about us down to the smallest detail. Nothing can be hidden from God. Nothing can surprise him or catch him off guard. God is sovereign. He rules over all things. He is Lord and King. He directs all things and works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's in Ephesians 1.11. God is immutable. He never changes. His word is certain. His plans are certain. His love is everlasting. God is good. He always does what is right and just. God is merciful and gracious. He has provided a way of hope, forgiveness, and life in Christ. And these are just a few of the attributes of God that we find in Scripture. Well, what can we take away here? Ignorance thought he knew God, but he was not thinking good thoughts concerning God. His concept of God was shaped by his experience and his imagination. Christian affirms that the only way to think rightly about God is to think of him as being, of his being and attributes as taught in the word of God. But where scripture confronts his notions, here we go with some applications, where scripture confronts his notions, he readily ignores it. It is his unwillingness to submit to God and his word that has bound, bound him to walk in ignorance. I kind of butchered that. Let me read that again. It is his unwillingness to submit to God in his word that has bound him to walk in ignorance. Well, another uh, application, it begins with the question that came to mind. How do we know that Christian and hopeful's gospel isn't circular like ignorance's gospel? you pick up on that? Well, ignorance, how do you know? Well, my heart tells me. Well, how do you know you're in right standing with God? Well, my heart tells me. But by contrast, Christian, how do you know? Well, the Word of God tells me. Well, how do you know that the Word of God tells you? Because the Word of God tells me. So from the outside, it could look like it's circular, right? But here's where I think there's the difference. The central truth of Scripture is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The book of Acts begins with these words. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. 
Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This scripture came to mind because today is on the liturgical calendar, Pentecost Sunday, the day that we celebrate the, the appearing of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. Jesus has risen. Jesus is alive. That's the tr central truth of Scripture, and that is what makes Scripture true. It's not circular. He's alive. He's, he's at the right hand of the Father right now, ruling and reigning. And because of that authority that has been given to him that we find in Matthew 28, everything that is said in Scripture is true. Well, let's move on to section 124. As Christian continues to press ignorance with the truths of God's word, ignorance responds with what appears to be a sound answer. Ignorance denies that his confidence is in himself and that he can come to God on the basis of his own works, even in his best performances. He claims, listen carefully, I must believe in Christ for justification. Okay. Christian, however, won't allow him to get by with using the language of salvation while missing the truth of salvation. I love that. Ignorance speaks of believing in Christ, but he doesn't grasp his need for believing in Christ. He sees only the value in Christ's righteousness, but he doesn't see Christ's righteousness as his only hope. This is where the narrative gets very, very interesting to me as I was looking through it. We've got to take some time to just slow down here and, and examine carefully this exchange. Ignorance takes offense at the implication that he does not know the attributes of God, nor knows the gospel. He says to Christian, do you think that I am such a fool as to think that God can see no further than I? Or that I would come to God in my, my best performances? Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in a dialogue and someone responded that way, I'd be back on my heels a little bit. Like, whoa. I think I'm offended. I think I've struck deeply here. How do I respond? We will see, and Bunyan puts on display for us, that Christian has, has enough information to know that ignorance does not know the true gospel. And so he asks him a question. He says, listen carefully to the narrative. Ignorance says, I'm sorry, I'll get to the question. But he says, I believe that Christ died for sinners and that I shall be justified before God from the curse through his gracious acceptance of my obedience to the law. Very subtle, huh? Or thus Christ makes my duties that are religious acceptable to his Father by virtue of his merits and so I shall be justified. A simple formula is, it's my works plus Christ. And as ignorance has displayed, it's mostly my works and a little bit of Christ sprinkled in. Very subtle, but something that I know that we need to pay attention to. So as we analyze this, Ken Paul says, ignorance rightly believes that Christ died on the cross for sinners. But, uh, let's see, lost my place here. Excuse me. A little bit of old age. 
This is the eating break. Pitcher's warming up. Okay, got it. Here we go. Play ball. Ignorance rightly believes that Christ died on the cross for sinners, but he thinks that his justification rests on his own obedience to God's law made acceptable to the Father through the merits of Christ's righteousness. Ignorance's error is rooted in a false assumption. He has grossly underestimated the vastness and vileness of sin, and he has greatly overvalued his righteousness in comparison. He believes he is basically a good person. His righteousness as humanly weak, but not filthy. We see a contrast in Isaiah 54. And wretched. We see a contrast in Romans 7.24. He trusts that God will graciously infuse the divine goodness and perfections of Christ with his own sincere efforts of religious devotion and by virtue of Christ's merit, now fortifying his own, accept him as righteous. Well, Christian rightly concludes that ignorance has a false and fantastical faith. A false and fantastical faith. A little bit more of that law to the proud, right? What ignorance believes is not in accordance with the revelation of Scripture, but contrived from the logic of religion. Though acknowledging Christ for divine assistance, ignorance believes he will be justified by God's gracious acceptance of his own obedience to the law. He is coming not as a wretched, condemned sinner looking to Christ to justify his person, but rather as a sincere, devout follower looking to Christ to justify his religious duties. Therefore, his faith is deceitful and dangerous because it leaves him under God's wrath and condemnation while convincing him that all is well. Very alarming. Very alarming. He's on his way to the celestial city. But as we go back to section 104, one of the things that comes to Christian mind is you did not come in by the wicked gate. And I am afraid for you, my friend, that when you arrive at the gates of the celestial city, you will be rejected because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, let's look at some takeaways here. God's word is clear. We cannot be justified or declared righteous before God by our own works. If we are to be justified, it can only be a gift of God's grace through the redemption provided for us in Christ. We cannot stand before God in our sinfulness. We cannot reach God through our own meager righteousness. We need the righteousness that is found in Christ alone for all who believe in him by faith. God does not justify us by our works made acceptable in Christ, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, let's move on to some lessons and applications, just looking at the time here. The question for all of us, are we walking in the true gospel or are we walking in a gospel of our own construction? Are we walking in the biblical gospel? Or one derived by our own heart and our own mind? Well, moving forward here, let's go into section 125 because we will continue in the narrative on this theme. Ignorance was gravely mistaken by his understanding of justification how he can be made right with God. But his error extends further to divine calling. 
how he is able to respond to the gospel and come to Christ in the first place. Divine calling. For ignorance, it's no wonder that he is a pilgrim in his way, on his way to the celestial city. He fails to see the true wonder and amazement of salvation. Ignorance believes himself to be a man of intellect and reason, capable of setting his own course and making his own choices in regard to following and serving Christ. For him, religion is a personal choice, a choice he was wise enough to make. And at this point in the narrative, Hopeful interjects a question. He encourages Christian to ask ignorance as he's ever had his heart opened so he could understand the gospel and know Christ savingly. But ignorance thinks such a notion is whimsical and, quote, the fruit of a distracted brains. How can these Christians question his devotion and doubt his salvation? See how far he has walked in the way? He believes in God and wants to go to heaven. He's a religious man who acknowledges the goodness of Christ. He is trying to follow Christ and live according to God's law. What does he need for revelations? He has already made it his goal to one day reach the celestial city. Though ignorance is confident that his faith is as good as hopefuls, Scripture teaches otherwise. Apart from God's grace, we are dead in trespasses and sins. That's Ephesians 2.1. We would remain ensnared in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and be under God's condemnation as children of wrath. That's Ephesians 2.3. But for God, Ephesians 2.4, who is rich in mercy. I'm going to skip down here to our last observation Apart from the grace of God, we will continue to walk in ignorance. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Well, as we look at some applications, here we see the glorious union of two essential truths. The sovereignty of God, he must give understanding. And the responsibility of man, we must come to Christ. In Christian's counsel to ignorance, Bunyan points us to both truths. We, give, we must give God all the glory for he alone saves. And we must ever plead with men to repent and believe in Christ. For there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Acts 4.12 Are you walking in grace? Or are you walking in ignorance this morning? Have you embraced the biblical calling of God, the divine calling? Well, sadly, we get to the end of this part of the conversation between Christian, hopeful, and ignorance. Christian and Hopeful will then close out the dialogue with a poem. And as you read it, it's as if they're reciting it in unison, like it hits them both at the same time, even though they're two different characters. They say, well, ignorance, wilt thou yet foolish be to slight good counsel ten times given thee? And if thou yet refuse it, thou shalt know ere long the evil of thy doing so. Remember, man, in time, stoop, do not fear, Good counsel taken well saves, therefore hear. But if thou yet, yet shalt slight it, that will be the loser, ignorance, I'll warrant thee. 
All right, let's move on to section 126 here. Ignorance and the fear of the Lord. Christian and hopeful, it seems, begin to debrief their second encounter with ignorance during this section. In doing so, they unpack more biblical truth about those who walk in ignorance, even those on the way to Celestial City. Looking at some of our observations, skipping down the list there in your handout, I just want to focus on this one. It is pride that makes us susceptible to worldly fear and immune to godly fear. Worldly fear intimidates and weakens us. It arises from threatening or overwhelming circumstances. It causes us to tremble before men and forget God. It instills anxiety and dread. But godly fear helps and strengthens us. Christian explains how to discern true godly fear. It gives us a list of three things. Number one, it arises from conviction of sin and compels us to flee from sin and helps us see our great need of a Savior. That's godly fear. It removes all confidence in ourselves and drives us to Christ as our only hope. That's godly fear. It instills reverence of God in the soul. Reverence in a, is a spiritual posture of worship that keeps us mindful of God's presence with us. It is an awareness of God that humbly acknowledges and submits to his crea- him as creator and Lord of all. That's godly fear. Another bullet point. True or right fear fears God and not men. Matthew 10, 28 says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to to destroy both soul and body in hell. But ignorance does not understand the difference. He equates all fears as weakness and a stain on his devotion. He's a false believer who dabbles in religion but shuns conviction. He's a false believer who dabbles in religion but shuns conviction. He seeks to stifle fear. Even godly fear that could eternally benefit his soul. Christian explains how the ignorant stifle their fears. And we have another list of four here. They believe all fear is bad and wrongly attributed to the work of the devil. They equate faith with confidence and assurance and see fear as undermining their faith. They believe that they should, not, they should fear not, so confidently put down their fears. They want others to see them as spiritually strong and pious. So they believe that fear makes them weak and less sure of themselves. So they stifle fear in an effort to feel holy inwardly and appear wholly outwardly. Ouch. Well, we live in a day when many have lost the fear of the Lord. People don't live from the vantage point that there's a sovereign God who has created all things and who will one day judge the world. They champion confidence and self-esteem as strength. They disparage humility and fear as weakness. Though they may be religious and acknowledge God's existence, they try to set their own pace and make their own rules. They imagine their own ideas of truth and justice and hold God in contempt for not making the world the way they believe it should be. We must not make the same mistake as ignorance. Godly fear is not weakness. It is wisdom and strength. It anchors us in God and his provision for us in Christ. It leads us to true justice and righteousness found in Christ and his kingdom. Godly fear is indeed a true treasure. I got about eight minutes here. Two more sections to go. How are you hanging? Good? Okay. Give you a little mental break. 
a little breath, get some more oxygen into the brain. All right, let's, let's dive into a different topic here, the fleeting faith of temporary. Going back to our introduction, Christian and Hopeful are nearing the end of their journey across the enchanted ground. Their extended conversations underscore the contrast between true faith and false faith. Hopeful, like Christian, has true faith. His hope rests in Christ alone. Ignorance has false faith. His hope is carried by his own good motions. Now, Bunyan adds a third contrast, fleeting faith. Christian remembers a former pilgrim named Temporary. His background gives us insight into his spiritual condition. Temporary is from the town of Graceless. He lacks true saving grace. That lies near honesty, though he tries to live an upright and moral life. He lived next door to Turnback, one who abandoned his faith and turned and returned to the ways of the world. Now, as you all know, you could do a whole sermon on this topic, but we're doing a survey. So I'm just going to move through it quickly and trust the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do in our takeaways here. I hope to get to the end because that's where I think the good stuff is. So Temporary was once acquainted with both Christian and Hopeful before his brief pilgrimage. When he was troubled by sin and overwhelmed with its consequences, he sought them out for help and counsel. Christian and Hopeful pointed him to Christ, and though Temporary gave some evidence of following Christ at the beginning, his faith was not enduring. When consequences abated and troubles faded, so did his faith. Temporary represents one whose profession of faith is short-lived. Initially, he was concerned about his sin, determined to become a pilgrim, and zealous for religion. He sought the Lord with tears. He had a convincing testimony. He renounced sin and expressed sorrow for sin. But despite his best intentions and efforts, he lacked the power to change. Though he gave the outward appearance of repentance, he did not truly repent. His love for sin was muted. I got to pause there. That reminds me of my own testimony. And I would issue this. I know our kids are in class, but maybe some are viewing during live stream, our young people. Be careful that your love for sin is on mute while you're young. Be honest and be careful. Sometimes when you grow up in the church, you grow up in a Christian family, you grow up under sound teaching of the gospel, sin can just lie in a dormant state. Affection for the world can just lie in a dormant state until you get on your own and you have the opportunity to express that desire for sin. Be careful this morning that your desire for sin is not on mute. Be honest about it. Confess it. Get counsel about it. Dive into the word about it. It will lead you astray. And it happens time and time in the body of Christ. So my heart is for you this morning because I've been there. But by God's grace, he did a work in my life and I'm here today. let's deal with some of these important questions that are included in our lesson today. Why did temporary backslide? I'm going to combine the reasons and manner that Bunyan provides in Pilgrim's Progress and try to sweep them together here. Uh, 
they're provided by the character of hopeful, and then the, um, the manner is, divide, is provided by the character Christian. Hopeful suggests that while temporary was aware of his sin and disturbed by its unsavory consequences, he did not hate sin. All that restrained him was the fear of what might happen as a result of his sin and the, and the shame of being found out. When that fear and shame were strong, he strove to be upright. But when fear and shame diminished, so did his desire to pursue holiness. He feared men more than God. And we've talked about that, so I won't, uh, I'll just keep moving on. And then being proud and haughty, as Pulse describes him, temporary was repulsed by the shame that attends religion. He saw religion as a useful refuge in times of felt weakness and need. But in good times, when he felt confident and strong, he determined that he needed no such crutch. Have you heard that? Christianity is a crutch for the weak. It's true in essence, but it comes at us as a criticism. The problem is that all of us don't realize how weak we are. Not only that we're weak, but how weak we are. We are powerless to save ourselves. We're continuing on. Temporary disliked feeling guilty and ashamed, similar to ignorance. Because his heart was unchanged, the more he tried to live as a Christian, the more he stumbled and felt bad about himself. The more he failed at gaining victory over sin, the more he suppressed conviction and pushed aside guilt. He lacked grace to look to Christ, and so he only saw himself troubled by sin. Rather than feel remorse, he made allowances for his sin. Rather than being continually oppressed with guilt, he gave up thinking about wrath and judgment. Well, let's look at the cause real briefly here. The character Christian says, well, the reasons are that those that are temporary draw off their thoughts. All that they may from the remembrance of God, death, and the judgment to come. I just don't want to think about it. Then they cast off by degrees private duties such as closet prayer, curbing their lust, killing sin, watching, being sorry for sin, and the like. Then they shun the company of lively and warm Christians. After that, they grow cold to public duty as hearing, reading, godly conference, and the like. And then they begin to pick holes, as we say, in the coats of some of the godly. And that devilishly, that they may have a seeming color to throw on religion. I just was reminded, you know, how popular it is in culture today to throw shade. Not a new concept. 1678 or so, John Bunyan talks about throwing color on those that have a different opinion, those especially of religion. And they do so behind their backs. Then they begin to adhere to and associate themselves with carnal, loose, and wanton men. You see the slippery slope? Then they give way to carnal and wanton discourses in secret and are glad if they can see such things in any that are counted honest, that they may meet more boldly and, and do it through example. After that, they begin to play with little sins openly, and then being hardened, they show themselves as they are, thus being launched again into the gulf of misery. Unless a miracle of grace prevent it, they everlastingly perish in their own deceivings. 
Well, folks, I, I promise I'm going to try to deliver on my promise real quickly. This just reminds me of 1 John 2, 18 through 20. I could see that were it all depending on us, all of us would be temporary. But it doesn't depend upon us. And God's word tells us so. John writes in 1 John 2, 18 through 20, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were never really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they, were, they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. Jesus also said in John 10, 27 through 30, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Well, we're out of time, so I'm going to close this morning. It's a quote there in your handout uh, from Alexander White. I believe that's how it's pronounced. Let me just read it to you. The perseverance of the saints, the five points notwithstanding, is not a foregone conclusion. The final perseverance of the ripest and surest saint is all made up of ever new beginnings in repentance, in faith, in love, and in obedience. Begin then every day new to repent anew, to return anew, to believe and to love anew. And if your all New Year repentances and returnings and reformations are already proved to be but temporary, even if they all lie all around you, already a bitter mockery of all your professions of sin, still begin again. Still begin again. Begin today. Begin tonight. Begin again tomorrow morning. Spend all the remainder of your days on earth beginning. And ere ever you are aware, the final perseverance of another predestinated saint will be found accomplished in you. Sounds a lot like preaching the gospel to yourself every day, doesn't it? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for our brother, John Bunyan, and the work that you did in his life by your spirit, which resulted in this work that we benefit from centuries later. Lord, we thank you for his devotion to your word. We thank you for the way that he has expressed that through the characters of Christian and hopeful, and even through the characters of ignorance and temporary. Because, Lord... There's a degree to which each of us can find ourselves ignorant and temporary in the faith. Father, keep us firm in your grip. Lord Jesus, keep us firm in your grip. Help us to persevere to the end. And Lord, help us to be a great benefit to one another, to preach the gospel not only to ourselves, but to others upon every occasion. We ask these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.